Mount Lampton-Laquat share with everybody. Good day, good people. You are tuning in and listening with Aalia with the Stella Signal podcast, hosted and sponsored by the SXTA. Today we're going to be talking to Nakakatsi, also known as Dr. Albert Sonny McKelsey, about his role as a historian within the Stella Nation. Uh, so, Sunny, can you please introduce yourself with your traditional name? Okay, uh, my name is uh, Nakakatsi, also known as Albert Sonny McKelsey. I come from uh, Shohamo. Uh, my ancestor name, Nakahatsi, is actually a Nakatmuch name from my grandfather and from my father, who both carried it before me. Uh, my father was uh, Nakatmuch from Tkion, uh, which is uh, Anderson Creek, just about three kilometers south of Austin Bar. However, my mother was Stalo, she was from uh, Chowthel, just uh, about 10 kilometers uh, west of uh, Hope. So I have both uh, Nakatmuch and uh, Stalo um, heritage. However, in 1993, I transferred to um, Shohamo, where my um, ex-wife and the, uh, my children are actually registered there, so that's why I transferred um, to Shohamo. Um, I am the uh, Historian and Culture Advisor at the Stoller Research and Resource Management Centre. Uh, in fact, I just um, celebrated 36 years of working for the Stalo, about three weeks ago now. Um, and so as a historian and cultural advisor, I uh, do a lot of work, uh, mainly with um, looking at some of the work that people do and uh, provide them you know, with advice or also even talk about the history, culture and history. Um, and I'm also the cultural advisor for my community of uh, Shohamel as well. And um, operate um, Bad Rock Tours. Bad Rock Tours is a uh, operated by the Stalo Research and Resource Management Centre as well as Stalo Tourism and I do 10 different tours all the way from Yale down to Surrey including an upriver tour, downriver tour, Chilliwack tour, tours at both the residential schools, Kokolitsa, St. Mary's, I have a tour down in Yosminster, uh, up at Chathlath, Millville site, up in Yale, Harrison Lake, Sumas Lake, Mataqui. A uh, number, of, number of different tours that I do where I share actually the place names and the meanings and significance of the names. So it's a good way for people to learn about Stalo culture and history by actually being out there um, on the land. How did you, or is there a memory you have in the beginning when you actually started gathering the oral history and recording elders? Well, I know I had a keen interest in our culture as I was growing up. Um, my father used to get an Indian doctor from Lillooet who never spoke a word of English who would come and do some work on my dad and my mom and also um, myself and my um, siblings. So really had a keen interest in our culture and I also remember my dad um, when we pulled into Lytton one time as we're going down, in, down the steep road uh, underneath the railroad tracks and I remember my dad looking around and said, oh, there's supposed to be a coyote rock around here somewhere. And I remember that kind of stuck in my head. I didn't know what he was talking about because he didn't say anything more about it. He just kind of said that, blurted it out, and that was it. And then it wasn't until many years later 
I was out there with an anthropologist and we were driving down the road and he said the exact same words, it's supposed to be a coyote rock around here. Right. And then so it really kind of sparked uh, my interest. And then uh, once I started doing this work, um, started off as the archaeology assistant back in 1985 as a summer, summer job. But, um, and I, I got the job without an interview, mainly because I had uh, experience working in the Hope Archaeology Project. Uh, in the summer of 76, 77, and 78, I'd worked in the Hope Archaeology Project. <clears throat> and so because of that experience, uh, Judy Douglas uh, from Manpower had called me and she said, Stahl Tribal Council is looking for someone. They just said, um, show up tomorrow morning at 8 o'clock. You don't need an interview. You're hired. Uh, so, so I showed up to work. And actually, it was a big turning point in my own personal life as well because I actually showed up to work with a hangover. <laughs> and um, yeah, so my job anniversary date is also my um, sobriety date as well. So 36 years of working here, 36 years of uh, sobriety three weeks ago as well. And the really cool thing about the job was that, well, of course, working along with the archaeologists at that time, but it slowly started evolving and looking at uh, Stolo culture and history. And of course, at first, because I was working uh, for the Alliance of Tribal Councils, which is three groups together, so the Nakatmuk, the Sekwatmuk, and the Stolo, all working against the um, proposed um, CNR twin tracking um, project. And many different aspects of the project that they're proposing to do was going to have huge impacts on us as Stalo. You know, it's going to have huge impacts on our reserves, on the salmon migration patterns, on our fishing spots, on our dry rack places, um, archaeological sites, huge things like that. So that's what we were doing was uh, spending time interviewing um, elders specifically about that. But as time kind of went on, um, one of the things that our leadership recognized was that we were losing uh, fluent health minimum speakers. And our leadership at that time would also realize that um, we need to capture the perspective that our elders hold on how they view the land. Because we kind of know ourselves being colonized and colonized into thinking like Western society. So we have a view, we look at the world like a person from Western society even though some of us might have some background in style, culture, and history. <clears throat> but they felt that uh, if we interview elders who speak the language, the feeling was that they would still think in the language and still think as Stalo and still view the world around them as a Stalo person would. And so that's what they wanted me to do. They said, interview all the fluent Halkmail speaking elders and um, uh, gain from them. Uh, different aspects of Stolo culture and history. And of course, the main interest that I had was um, place names. So that really, yeah, was really interest for me. And I think I had my own personal experiences there as well that kind of uh, had an influence in, on me. And one of them was um, interviewing the late uh, Peter Dennis Peters, Grand Chief Peter Dennis Peters, South Helmuthuk, and uh, interviewing with place names. And this one day he was I'm sharing with me some of the, his place name knowledge. And then we got to this one point, and he goes, you know what, Sonny? And I went, what? He said, I really wish your grandfather was here, because my grandfather passed away back in 1964. And I said, oh, why is that? And he said, well, he said, what I'm sharing with you today is a drop in the bucket compared to what your grandfather could have shared with you. He said, your grandfather knew all the names, all the way from Yale, all the way down to Vancouver. He knew all the place names, and he would have been really been able to offer you more. 
And so that's been a real kind of an inspiration uh, for myself, knowing that my grandfather um, shared these uh, place names. And so over the course of the years then, recording place names, and what I found out is that place names, just going to, looking at place names, you also start learning different aspects of style culture and history, right? As soon as you start going out there on the land, because that's what I ended up doing. Uh, so first of all, trying to interview elders in the office, in an office setting, sitting at a table, tape recorder on, and then I realized I didn't have the same intimate knowledge of places that they had. So they were explaining places, and you know, said, where is this place? And then they tried to explain to me how to get there, what road to go down, and what tree to go around, or what trail to walk down, and I had no idea where it was at, because I didn't have the same knowledge of the land that they did. And so um, they said, well, we'll just have to go out by a car. So we took them out on the car, just around the Paul and myself, we were both interviewing them. And we took them out on the car and brought them out on the land, and that's when they were able to share with us these place names. So when I looked at it, it's almost like they actually started taking me out on the tour first in order for me to learn the place names. And of course, then once I started learning some of the place names, some of my um, uh, fellow fellow workers and also some of my supervisors were asking questions. So how's your work going? Like, um, what are you learning? You know, and so then what I started doing was trying to explain to them these places I was learning about because all excited about it, right? And and of course they didn't know where these places were at as well. And I was going, well, the only way I can teach you about it is by taking you out there. Mm -hmm. So I don't even actually remember the first tour that I did because it just kind of happened that way where I started taking fellow staff members. And the next thing I know, I'm taking out students from the schools. So I don't even remember the first tour that I did with students, but then it just snowballed after that mm -hmm. right and then um so now that's what i do is uh, operate uh, bad rock tours and then of course i'm planning on retiring soon i'm turning 65 this october and i don't think i'm going to retire right when i'm 65. Um, yeah so one of the things that we're doing is trying to train other people to take over the bad rock tours and mm -hmm. other people learn about it and so i'm really open right now and really looking for young people who have a keen interest in our culture and history and yeah, if they give me an open ear, I'm going to fill it as much as I can, you know, so really important to um, share this knowledge. So Elizabeth Hurling said that um, knowledge is only important when you share it. She said that you could be the smartest person in the world and know everything, but if you don't share it, it's, it's meaningless. She said knowledge only becomes important when you share it, right? And same with Rosaline George, she, was, she taught me the importance of sharing because she said that some elders were... Um, complaining to her, telling her, why do you tell them everything? You should hold back some of the information. I think it was elders that probably didn't have the same knowledge capacity as Rosaline that were telling her that. And her response to, to them was, how are my grandchildren going to learn if I don't tell them everything? I have to tell them everything. You know, so she had a really open heart on sharing. So when I look at those two together, with those two, their own you know, morals or principles about um, sharing information and sharing knowledge. Was there a turning point for you in realizing that this was a lifelong journey? Like you kind of spoke to that in, in how it had snowballed, but did you kind of wake up one day and realize, okay, I'm the guy now and this is what I'm doing. And, you know, just finding that, like mm. you said, that passion and that pride that, that come, come from your grandfather. It's really like a family gift that you yeah. carry. I think the big turning point was 
For about two and a half years, I was working from grant to grant or funding agency to funding, right? So I was working for the Stahl Travel Council at that time and Mark Point was the head of the organization and uh, Kat Penier was uh, head of the Aboriginal Rights and Title Department. And I would get laid off on Friday and hired back on Monday. And so they'd give him my notice, two weeks notice, and he was gonna get laid off and then come Friday, you know, I get my paycheck and get my holiday pay and then they call me into their office like two or three o'clock in the afternoon and say, oh, by the way, we have another grant and we're wondering if you want to stick around with us for a little while longer. Okay, so, oh, sure. So I'd show back up to work on Monday. But, oh, even before that, um, so I got the summer job, making minimum wage, already had a family. I needed to subsidize, subsidize that income because it's minimum wage and so I was actually fishing seven days a week just to subsidize that, that income. But I remember at the end of the summer, um, Mark and Kat called me into their office and said, uh, they said, uh, are you interested in taking off a year uh, out of, off of uh, college? Because I was sending college at the time. And we'll double your wage, double what you're making. And uh, yeah, we'll give you a job for a year. I said, oh, sure. So I accepted that, and here I am, <laughs> 36 years later, still at it. But yeah, as I mentioned, I think the turning point was that two and a half years after working, um, Stahl Travel Council had grown in numbers by then. I think by then there's like over 20 staff, because I think when I first started, there's only four staff that was working, five, five of us, I think. Anyways, um, after two and a half years, we had, what do you call it, a staff retreat and they're doing a circle where people were talking about, you know, they said, share whatever you want. Talk about your job, talk about your personal life, whatever you want. And so a lot of the staff were talking about their holidays. And uh, so when it got to mine, and I went, wow, you guys are all talking about holidays? You guys get holidays? I said, I've been working here for two and a half years and I haven't had a holiday yet. And, you know, because I realized that every time I got laid off, they'd give me my holiday pay, but I didn't get the holiday because I'd come back to work on Monday and started another project. So I remember Mark and Kat kind of looking at each other and they both burst out laughing and Mark said, okay, we'll take care of that, Sonny. You're going to start getting holidays. So, yeah, I think that was kind of the big turning point there when officially given a, for like a full-time job that, uh, where I was going to get the holidays, yeah. It's kind of like a creator putting you in the places you're meant to be and and laying out that path like a lot of young people always will come to me and say how did you know what you were going to do or how did you get into this and it's really like you just follow you yeah. follow the signs you follow what's kind of laid out for you to do you do what you're asked you know mm -hmm. and that's really how you do the good work that you do yeah. all the time when i've known you you've always done good work mm. even way back in um, when you used to DJ too, yeah. <laughs> for the and you would just do that for yeah. the youth, right? Like yeah. come show up and set up, and there was nobody else doing that yeah. at that time, right? And it was the kids having a good time. So I think the other big um, thing was uh, 1988 when um, Taylor Gutierrez had shared with us what the chiefs used to say, and it's becoming a really important principle. And I recognize that right away is an important principle. Um, but back in 1988, uh, again worried about losing elders because we were losing elders and at the time we were collecting information from the elders to use in court against the CNR twin, proposed CNR twin tracking project and because we were losing elders we felt that well we needed to collect um, evidence for them and so along with working along with Stephen Point who's a lawyer at that time was beginning 
been years as a lawyer and working along with Kat and, and Stephen and ourselves, uh, Gordon Mose, Randall Paul, myself, and uh, Richard Daly, another anthropologist. And what we decided to do was interview elders on video. And what uh, Stephen said, as long as we do the interview in a way of a legal affidavit so that it could be presented in court. So he said, as long as we provide that, that legal basis at the front of the interview, then it can be used in court. Mm -hmm. So that's what we were doing. So we had a number of elders uh, lined up, and one of them was uh, late uh, Yamalot Tilikateros from uh, Chowtel. And I remember when we were interviewing her, then uh, for the first time she ever shared, and of course, I've only been working for three years at the time, right? And uh, she said, well, she remembered as a young girl at a place called Eam, uh, which is about four kilometers north of Yale, now known today as Bell Crossing. Uh, but it's also where her and her husband, the late Alan Gutierrez, met because their fishing camps were right side by side. But they were right at the place called Eam, where the very first salmon was always caught for the first salmon ceremony. But also right adjacent to their campground was this meeting spot. You can go there today and you can still see all the boulders sticking out. And she was able to show me where all the leaders used to sit. She showed me where my great-grandfather, Dennis Peters, used to sit. But she said all the leaders would come and get together there and they would talk about what was then labeled the land question. Okay, nowadays we talk about it as Aboriginal rights and title, but back then they labeled it the land question. But she said before they started the meeting, they started off with this important statement, and that statement in their language is, um, and basically means uh, this is our land, we have to take care of everything that belongs to us. And so I was very intrigued with that, and it really provided like a guiding principle for me because right away I recognized the first part of the statement as a statement in our own language that this is our land. So a statement of our Aboriginal rights and title. So when you look at that, this is our land. We've taken ownership of it. We call our land We can't call it Other people can call it but we ourselves, we have to take ownership of it. And we have to take the ownership of everything that's on it because the next part of this statement, Hosmet to Mukstam eat Kalat, we have to take care of everything that belongs to us. And so, of course, only been working three years at that point, it really stuck in my mind. I'm going, okay, what were our chiefs talking about when they said we have to take care of everything that belongs to us? So, what is that everything? They're, what are they talking about? So, that was what kind of drove me, and I was that's what I was doing. That seemed like that's my whole objective of my work was to find out what that is. And I think today when I do the tours, Bad Rock tours, that's what I'm sharing. And what I believe are the most important uh, things that we as Stalo have to believe in and, and understand and, and own, take ownership of those things, you know, because a, a lot of it is a very unique relationship that only we as Stalo have with our land and everything that's around us. And so that was a real, um, yeah inspirational hmm. quote that uh, that Rosalie or that uh, Tilly brought out as well a lot of uh, really sort of I guess memorable moments with these elders mm -hmm. that's that's what it brings me to is, is you had these these key moments with these elders where they would give you that knowledge and just how it impacted you and like what you say it stuck with you you know, and made those foundations for the rest of your work. Because yeah. we still use that in all of 
the work that guides us with the mm-hmm. treaty, with the constitution and self-government, it's, it's, it comes back to that yeah. basic principle about us being connected to the land and being a part of it, not just, uh, like you say, other people saying, yeah, it's Stalo territory, but us having that ownership language around it. Yeah. Gives us that responsibility too, right? Yeah, that's one of the things I really share with everyone, especially young people now today. Is you gotta take ownership. You gotta believe in it. You know, we have that new group <clears throat> that just started work here a couple of weeks ago, and uh, part of part of the work is you know to actually take it, take care of the land and what is it that we need to take care of. And that was my key message to them is that they need to believe it. You know, because that was a big turning point I think in my life as well. Because I remember when I first started this job I was looking at it is from a third person. So when I talked about what the elders were teaching, I talked about it like it was over there. You know, and I was going, oh, the elders are saying this and this. And I wasn't taking ownership of it. You know, it wasn't until I realized, you know, a couple of elders had shared with me, like the late um, Peter Dennis Peters, South Almuthuk. Um, he was just telling a story about beaver and frog. It's kind of a love story. And it's a Shokwayam story up there. It took place up at the mouth of Spasmo Creek. And, I asked him to share a story in the language, and then I said, share it in English. And so he told the story and helped me them, and of course, I didn't understand a word that he was saying. Uh, but he was laughing throughout the story, right? And at certain points, he'd start laughing, and then he'd carry on talking. So I still have that somewhere in my recordings. <clears throat> and then he told it in English. And, and of course, then it was a funny story. It's a funny love story. And so we were both laughing really hard. Then all of a sudden he got really serious. Like we're both sitting there laughing, laughing, and all of a sudden he just got really serious, just instantly quit laughing. And he got a real serious look on his face, and I'm laughing, then I'm like, oh, what's going on here? So I thought, I better stop laughing too. So I did. I stopped laughing. And then he goes, you know what, Sonny? And I said, what's that? He says, um, these stories may seem funny, but they're true. They really happened. Right? So I never forgot that. And then uh, later on, probably two years later, maybe somewhere around there, interviewing um, Rosalind George um, Yamalot. She's almost said the exact words, these stories are true, they really happened. Right, and that's how the whole thing has evolved now when you look at, you know, now we have Tichelatza downstairs and look how we take care of them. Right, and to me that was such a proud moment to see the youth really believing in that, you know, believing that the spirit of Shuli of uh, Tichelatza is inside that stone. And because that was a big turning point for my, my life as well, was in 1993 when I went and asked uh, Yamalot about Shuli. And it was because uh, late Eddie Victor was talking about, you know, the songs that were coming out of the rock. And, and I was wondering if she was talking about Shuli, because back in 1985, when I first started this job, um, one of the tasks I was given was to read the Halkamayam classified word list cover to cover. And I just sat there at my desk and just read over all these words. And I remember coming to Shuli and I remember being spirit of life force. And at that time, my limited knowledge was that I knew everything had a spirit. I knew the elders talked about everything having a spirit. I heard some of the elder chiefs talking about everything has a spirit, but none of them had ever elaborated on what that meant or how that came about or why does everything have a spirit, right? So it wasn't until um, I asked uh, Yamalot about it, and I said, I told her what uh, uh, what Eggie had said, and asked her, is she talking about Shuli? And she said, that's exactly what she's talking about. I said, well, can you tell me what Shuli is? So she puts her hand on her chest, and she goes, Shuli is inside you here. It's in your parents, it's in your great 
grandparents, it's in your great-great-grandparents, it's in the rocks, it's in the trees, it's in the grass, it's in the ground. And at that moment, I just realized what she was talking about and realized and just connected everything in the story. So what Aggie was talking about, the singing that was coming there was from the three chiefs and their Shuli was in that rock and that's what was singing. And then I realized, Tlaitlake then, her Shuli is in that mountain. The Shuli of her three daughters, Tewat and Iwat, Kamathia is in, the, in those rocks. The Shuli of my two ancestors from Shohamal who were transformed into sturgeon is in that sturgeon. The Shuli of Chape is inside that cedar tree. And so on. You look at all the different Shokuyam stories and you connect that together. And not only that, but we have Shuli, because she said it's inside you here. And it's in your parents and your grandparents and your great grandparents and your great 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 grandparents. So that's what connects us, connects everything together. Mm. Right? And that's what makes us a part of this land. And of course, as soon as you look at yourself being attached to the land, there's that whole stewardship responsibility. Chafmet to Makstam, we have to take care of everything that belongs to us. Our hands go up to Nakakatsi for all the work that he's done for our communities. He's taken the time to speak with elders and ensure that all this cultural knowledge is preserved. He is such a generous person and a real treasure for all the Stalo people. We want to thank you for listening to this longer Stalo Signal podcast. We've gotten feedback that people want longer episodes, so if you're happy with this shift, send us a message to outreach at sxta.bc.ca. Write a note to us on social media or even write a review of our podcast on iTunes or Spotify. We have one more episode in our Halkamalem Principles series, and we can't wait to share it with you. And on that note, we'll let Sunny have the last word. Mount Lamptemukwat, share with everybody. Mount Right, so it's everything, you know, we're always taught to share. I think the best story that I could talk about learning how to share comes from uh, the late Haitiluk, uh, Ray Silver. And many, many years ago, probably 25 years ago, I think, because he still worked at the brick plant and I used to go visit him uh, during his coffee break or lunch break and just talk with him. And he told me how he was taught to share by his grandfather. He said he went hunting with his grandfather. He got his first deer and he went back to the village, brought his deer, all happy and proud because he got his first deer and his grandfather made him skin it and butcher it all up and cut it up into portions and they said, give it out, give it out to everyone. So he went out throughout the whole village and gave away the whole deer. He, didn't give, he wasn't allowed to keep a single part of it. And they went out again and got another deer. Got back, grandfather told him the same thing, cut it all up, they cut it up. Bring it out, share it with everyone. So he went out, shared it with, with everyone in the village. And then he went out and got his third deer. Brought it back to the village. His grandfather told him, cut it in half. And they cut it in half. That's your half, you get to keep that. Cut this other half up and go and share it with everybody. So he said that's what he ended up doing. And he said that's what his grandfather was teaching him, the importance of sharing. Right, and we're always taught to share. Like when someone comes to our house, we share with them. You know, we, um, we don't ask them if they want coffee or tea. We give them coffee or tea, right? Because we're also humble, right? So you come to my house and then I ask you if you want coffee and tea. Because of your humbleness, you're going to say, oh, no, 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 I'm, I'm okay, I don't need, you know. And that's why we're taught that we just give it to you, we serve it to you. And then we, what we're doing is we're counting on our other teaching, whereas if you're given something, you can't turn it away. 
right? If I give you food, you have to eat it. If I give you something to drink, you have to drink it or, or whatever. Not all of it, you know, parts of it, at least have part of it. Because that's such an important thing is, uh, is sharing, you know, sharing with, uh, sharing with everybody. And that's why we do that. It's really important to us, an important teaching. Oh, no. I know too deep inside.